Don't fuck this up. Do you read Sutter Kane? Speaking of fuck-ups, hello, welcome back to another episode of the Waffle Press Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me today is Matt Garingo. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. This is uh, our traditional John Carpenter episode for Halloween, which uh, I, I think we've been... I, I've, I've enjoyed these discussions. Yes, as have I. Although I kind of... Like, like a few days ago, I kind of had a moment where I was like, I, we should throw all this out and talk about Ram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> That movie, that movie rules. Oh, that movie is so good. Um, we might have to do that next year, as with a Carpenter film, maybe. But we'll see. I was like, are there any vampire John Carpenter movies? And then I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, vampires. Oh my baby. James Woods is a fine actor. He's a, just an awful, awful person. <laughs> He's like a legitimate insane person. He's like a legitimate evil person. Yeah, yeah, no, he's terrible. But what is not terrible is John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, the unofficial conclusion to the unofficial Apocalypse trilogy that John Carpenter kicked off with The Thing in 1982. Unofficially kicked off with The Thing. It's all unofficial. All (laughs) of this is unofficial. (laughs) Unofficial. And then, of course, he continued with uh, Prince of Darkness in 1987, which we talked about two years ago now and kind of started our John Carpenter yearly the, uh, tradition the better version of prometheus prince of darkness uh y- yeah i i would agree but i'm not i'm not going into your your mind games about the alien franchise and in the mouth of madness is is the better version of covenant somehow <laughs> no that that one doesn't work you, you try probably and not but, that, but that's alien covenant's fault for not working as a film <laughs> stop god what a piece of shit <laughs> uh speaking of pieces of shit Many people feel that way about John Carpenter's later films. Mm-hmm. I I don't always agree with that. There are definitely some misses, uh, <laughs> to say the least. This is mid-90s Carpenter, um, which, again, it's very rare because he kind of had that just run in the 80s of just hit after hit after hit. And it's weird because he didn't really change too much as a filmmaker entering the 90s and it just doesn't work as well sometimes and i don't really know why like i watched village of the damned um earlier this year and it was just kind of a mess like it's but it's got like a lot of like carpenter flourishes that are nice but it never really comes together and uh and then i'm not i know you're a fan but i am not a fan of escape from la there's something about i don't know like it's weird because (laughs) escape from new york is like such a low budget film that like they're working within like such narrow margins that it's really cheap and not that exciting. It's just like a really cool movie. And then Escape from LA, he finally has a huge budget and it just doesn't work as well. Um, and that kind of fucks him because that was like his, that was going to be his big, uh, one of his, uh, like his third attempt at a big break. And then Escape from LA bombed. Um, but before Escape from LA, he did In the Mouth of Madness, which is a genuinely great movie. Absolutely mad. The riots began because the stores could not meet the demand of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. The guy that writes horror books 
You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I think this might be his last great film. And I again, there's definitely stuff I like later. I'm actually on record as also being a fan of Ghost of Mars. And if you don't like that movie, totally get it. Same thing for Escape from L.A., Vampires. Uh, like, I understand. But this one, I think, is, is great. I like Vampires. I like Vampires a lot. Um, but it is also kind of a mess. Yeah, yeah. It's very mean. It's a very mean film, mm-hmm. which uh, I think turns a lot yes. of people off, too. And I think I do think a part of Carpenter's later work does get excessively mean, which is weird because, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's had, like, several films end with everyone dying. I mean, that's what turned uh, people against the thing when it first came out. Everyone dying, quote-unquote, yep. maybe, possibly, probably. No, they're all dead. <laughs> it's not, it's, it, that's a... You're not doing too well in that scenario. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's what I think, but there's always like, oh, maybe they got found eventually or that take, and uh, whatever. That's not what I get there, out of it, but... There's the official comic book follow-up where uh, McCready and Childs were found by, like, a, a group or something. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, yeah I, I owned it at one point. I don't know where it is. <laughs> there's also the official follow-up uh, to The Thing in The Thing video game from 2004. I believe. Ah, yes. Um, which scared me too much as a kid. I couldn't finish it. Oh, um, I couldn't finish it because it's actually a pretty solid game from what I remember, but if you like, it was one of those games where if you didn't carry an item that you didn't know you needed through like multiple levels, you couldn't go back to get it either. So you just mm-hmm. got stuck and had to restart the entire game. The one thing I remember though that like disappointed me about that is they built up this idea of like your squad and like who you can trust and whatnot. And that never really came into play, you know? Yeah, it was it, it was always just kind of like a, a fun feature, like on basically side missions. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it never flourished in a, in a fun way. And that might be limitations of technology at the time. Like mm-hmm. now, I bet that game could be incredible, you know? Yes. Um, I think there would be a good, like, tabletop thing, video game. I mean, game, like board game. Um. Where one ki- one player is the thing and everyone else isn't. I feel like someone could make that work. Yeah, it sounds. You know fun. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not big into tabletop games, but I like Risk. Oh, I'm, okay. a, I'm a fascist, I guess. All right. Well, Risk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what else is a risk? Listen, I had more points to make. All right, go ahead. Playing video game. <laughs> John Carpenter's in the Thing video game. He is. Yeah, he shows up, and I think he gets shot. <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he dies. Spoiler alert. He gets shot in the uh, back. <laughs> no one cares about the Thing video game. <laughs> and uh, and McCready shows up at the end. Oh, yeah, because he's awesome, and he, he, he uh, gives you a ride in a helicopter to fight the big Thing monster at the end. It's a good thing that Thing monster grew around a bunch of explosive barrels. <laughs> yep. I love video games. Um, the only thing I really remember that, like, hell holds up is that you get to explore the old base, um, Outpost 31. That's pretty cool. Other than that, I don't think the game holds up super well. <laughs> yeah, no. But uh, they also do that in the Thing remake from 2011, starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who's a very good actress, who happens to be in a very bad film. <laughs> I'm sorry, that film doesn't exist. Anyway, <laughs> In the Mouth no. of Madness. <laughs> no, In the Mouth of Madness is a much better film. 
In the Mouth of Madness was written by uh, Mike DeLuca, who was the former president of New Line Cinema, uh, the company that ended up distributing this film. And I guess he wrote it in the 80s and wanted Carpenter to do it, and he said no. And then it was shopped around for a couple years. Um, Pet Cemetery director Mary Lambert was one of the people they looked at. Um, but then they ended up coming back around to Carpenter, who thought it would be the perfect end to his uh, Apocalypse trilogy. Unofficial perfect end of his unofficial apocalypse trilogy i find myself kind of more interested in thematic trilogies not that obviously i have nothing against you know like traditional sequel trilogies like we did a fucking star wars show you know and batman and spider-man and all that jazz but um i don't know do you why why do you think it's so uh, uncommon compared to regular sequel trilogies i don't know but i like movies all right. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to add to the conversation about unofficial trilogies and whatnot. Thanks, Matt. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't understand what point I should make. No, no, no. I don't. I don't expect you to make any point. I'm just curious. The only thing. The only thing. Fucking an unofficial trilogy means is that there one day there might be a box set with all three of these movies in. Doubtful, considering I think they were all released by different companies. <laughs> so that would take a lot, but. <laughs> You know, it's like Guillermo del Toro has that box set of, like, three movies. And like, oh, yeah, those three work together. But uh, I kind of see this one, especially with Carpenter, though, it's weird to break these specific three into a trilogy because I really feel with his movies, each one kind of ends up leading into the next in some themes. Um, as, as with a lot of other great directors, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you see repeated motifs and themes and characters and archetypes and all that. Um so I don't know that... I just think the apocalypse thing is kind of like, oh, did you notice that all three of these movies are about the end of the world? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you know. Um, and they're all very different apocalypses, which I guess is interesting. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have much to add in terms of, like, a rise or descent of some, like, other narrative going on. <laughs> I do oddly enough feel that In the Mouth of Madness, not just being like Carpenter's last great movie, it kind of feels like him closing the door on his earlier work, you know? Not in a like mean way, it just feels like this is the end of where he was going with everything. Yeah, it's one of those films like uh, that would honestly kind of work as a director's last film, even, I would argue. Uh, and maybe I wouldn't feel that way if carpenter had a a couple more hits left in him like regardless for whatever reason whether it was him or the studio system whatever uh it's 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 just a weird place to to kind of leave that off especially considering not much came after uh this film for him you know career-wise at least that's a shame because he was always that guy he's like there was always waiting for that moment where he finally had that big hit after halloween halloween was kind of the one that basically paved the way for his entire career. Mm-hmm. And then it just never really happened for him after that, and that's a real shame. I think he was supposed to do Tombstone at one point. Yeah. That would have, I think, been the movie that kind of got him more mainstream success. But, you know, maybe it's always that thing of, like, if he had gone more mainstream, like, maybe that would have broken him too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's something about him staying on the mark. I just wish he could have, you know financially benefited from it yeah because i mean that's always his big thing everyone always tells him like literally everyone always tells him like oh you know everyone loves your movies now and he's like yeah, that doesn't do shit for me so 
Yeah, he like, doesn't really seem to give a shit. Yeah. I mean, at least he's, like, comfortable. Just a grumpy old man smoking weed and playing video games and scoring another Halloween movie. And almost doing a Sonic the Hedgehog movie, apparently. <laughs> what? There was, like, rumors for a little bit that he was going to direct the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Well, I know he's a huge fan. That would have been incredible. I honestly think it was one of those where, like, he just announced that he was a fan and then maybe met with Sega about something. <laughs> but, like, there was no real plan for him to do it. But still, that's something to think about. Yeah. If it's, like, fucking Starman, but it's Sonic the Hedgehog. I forget if we talked about this on the, the Prince of Darkness episode, but um, I I just remembered that Carpenter was also in line to do Exorcist 3 at one point. Yeah, yeah. And that... I love Exorcist 3. It's a great movie. But I really would have liked to have seen that happen, too. That that could have been pretty fascinating. Carpenter's take would have been interesting, but Exorcist 3 is such a unique beast of a movie, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, it doesn't... It feels like if you hand it to another director, they can't do it, you know? Yeah, I mean, you get something else entirely from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very special, as it is. But I, I don't know. I would, it would be interesting just to see Carpenter work with fucking George C. Scott. <laughs> Which is just... An in, what was George C. Scott doing, like, slumming it in horror movies in the 80s? I don't know. But, I mean, like, slumming it... He's excellent in Exorcist 3. He, oh, he is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he is so fucking good in that movie. And sells it to the point where... Which is... I honestly think that that's a thing that... Um, I think James Wan tapped into this, where he, like, hired real actors for his horror movies, you know? Because so yeah. many horror movies, like, will get, like, unknown TV people or, like, really bad young actors. And it doesn't, like, lend any sort of weight to anything or believability. But you get these horror movies where you have older, more respected actors in it. It 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 just add, it feels more real when you finally sit down to watch the thing. And I think something that, that translates from Exorcist 3 back in the, in, in the Mouth of Madness is that the actors portraying the people really bring this uh, like humanity to them, obviously. But you also see them doing, like, human things. And this isn't just a new thing. Some, like, I think this is a problem that kind of uh, lower-budget horror films kind of suffer from. Just, like, logical reasons. This isn't, like, a, a sharp dig or, like, some revelation. But, like... Um, Everything has to revolve around the scares or the thrills, you know. Yeah, and uh, and and in the mouth of madness, I think it kind of has this nice gradual build up. Like from the opening, you know where it's going. Like it's not like a surprise twist or anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, it's it very does. I mean, it, stated. It tells you what's how it ends at the start. It's one of those. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but just and... watching it all unravel is uh, a real pleasure. Yeah, this shows it really plays to his Carpenter's strengths because he. He's definitely a director where occasionally he'll lean into like, oh, something hasn't happened for X number of minutes. We have to do that, but only rarely. Like he he knows that maybe like the first thirty minutes of your movie should be entirely build up, and that really pays off here. Look, I, I love like my my cheap little thrills, like my hour and a half long, like you're in you're out kind of movies too. But even the best of those, like I think of obviously The Shallows, which is a mainstay for me now. Uh, it's got a nice... Actually, it's, it opens very similarly to In the Mouth of Madness. It just tells you how it ends, basically. Um, it builds up just enough of what you need to know, and then it's like, all right, shark attack movie, you're in, let's go. 
and, and the Mouth of Madness is more complicated than a shark attack movie. Although you're talking low budget and short movies, this is a this movie was eight million dollars in the nineties, and it's only it's like ninety three minutes, which is crazy considering how much happens in it, because it does feel like three different movies, kind of. Yeah, and um, it's just one of those movies where I'd argue that works to its benefit, but it is oh, yeah. a lot, <laughs> you know? I also think that uh, there's other movies like this where they do a very good job with that first 30 minutes of build-up, and then once the, the release, the first release happens, they kind of don't know where to go. And this movie kind of does an interesting thing where they do that release, but then it veers in a direction you don't always expect. Especially the first time around. I guess we should say, definitely, before we get really into it, if you haven't seen In the Mouth of Madness, go watch it. I'm trying to think, like, a, just a quick sentence pitch. Like, I, I don't know I don't know how to sell it to people, but just go watch it because it's great. All you need to know, it's about how Sam Neill, playing a guy named John Trent, went crazy looking for a missing horror writer. That's the setup. <laughs> That's it. And it's a John Carpenter film. You shouldn't need a plot. Because <laughs> I did... This one was one that... I watched Carpenter a lot as a kid, but this one I only watched... I want to say, like, when I was 18 or something, which is really late compared to the rest of Carpenter's work. Mm-hmm. And it kind of was like finding a lost John Carpenter movie. Because it just it just feels... It's so his vibe, and it's so his style. that, And it, it just works, you know? Yeah, um, and I think that's something that's actually kind of fun about this one because this does kind of get shuffled into later Carpenter, which again everyone has kind of discussed as like lesser, obviously. Um, but people usually discover this one later. Like I definitely didn't watch it till I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that discovering it, it felt like I was going on that journey too, you know, in, in kind of a fun way. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a real pleasure. Go go watch it before you come back to listen to this. Well, I think that other reason why it's not as as hyped as his other films is because that he became that cult figure in the 80s, and I think it's a thing where all the kids that grew up on him in the 80s just grew out of him at some point, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then they passed him on to the next generation, but they grew up before In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot from the 80s that kind of gets carried over I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately where, like, in the early days of the internet, um, before, like, before the big 80s revival that, I always say the 80s revival kind of started with the first Transformers movie, but I'm sure there are better examples. (laughs) And then I think it peaked with, like, Stranger Things, which, like, that's, like, a full decade of, like, living in the 80s. How do I put this? Like, in the early days of online like video hosting how much of it was people who were inspired by stuff from the 80s like hyping shit from the 80s you know mm-hmm. um, like the angry video game nerds and the nostalgia critics and all that oh boy i'm just saying like i, I don't even mean those guys specifically but like people who were imitating their style oh yeah yeah i, I, I know you're not like endorsing i get what you're saying that's that's um yeah turning it into uh like this stuff in the myth you know mm-hmm. like they developed their own canon which was basically ignored by a lot of uh mainstream critics for a long time i mean no one really respected carpenter in his day like even this i was reading reviews for it and everyone was like yeah carpenter's a fine director but the script sucks 
And, like, that's as deep as people went with it. And I don't know. It's it's weird. Because then there just becomes this new, the, the whole cult canon of the 80s. And that kind of becomes, like, this worship thing. But then also a lot of the people that propped it up didn't really get super introspective with a lot of it. Like, you still find a lot of videos of people claiming Carpenter films are apolitical. I'm not, I'm not going to name the guy, but there's some hack out there that was like, They Live isn't political, Robocop isn't political, and it's like, holy shit, you don't understand anything. I, I kind of understand maybe missing the point in They Live, even though it is like hitting you over the head. <laughs> I don't know how you miss it in Robocop, really. <laughs> I mean, holy shit. Um, but it was like, you know, it's that thing where it's like, Carpenter doesn't, because Carpenter doesn't, talk politics which isn't even true he does talk politics um you can find tons of interviews of him talking about his like where he's basically like no i made they live about ronald reagan (laughs) and everyone's like carpenter's not interested in the political side of filmmaking (laughs) and it's it's ridiculous to me i mean he basically there's there's a really funny thing where he was like i wrote uh he wrote escape from new york about watergate (laughs) That's what he believes Escape from New York is about. And he kept telling it to, like, studios, and they're like, we don't understand what this has to do with Watergate. But again, it's like, all these people are like, yeah, that movie's awesome. It's like, and then you get a lot of those imitators. I think you get uh, the 90s where everything kind of gets, you know, self-referential, like, Scream and the faculty. And at least Scream goes a little deeper than most, but the faculty is kind of like, what if a John Carpenter film happened at a high school? Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm barely reading the script right now. I haven't seen the movie yet. Just, that's as far as I want you to go there. Oh, the, oh, the faculty? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, check it out. Don't, why are you reading the script? Fucking watch the movie. <laughs> I want, I just like reading the script before I watch the movie sometimes. Who, 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 what? <laughs> what? Who, what? <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a weird thing I like to do with older blind who? spots. If I could find the script, who? sometimes I read them before I watch the movie. Just watch the movie. I, I have my own way of doing things. You have it's a yours. Robert, it's a Robert Rodriguez movie. What are you doing? Yeah, I know, but it's a blind spot, so it's like holy ground for me. What? I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. <sighs> the Apocalypse trilogy leans into a lot of Lovecraft ideas. You can kind of see where it comes from. I mean, mouth the title itself comes directly from At the Mountains of Madness. Um, it's a play on that, anyway. But this is the most uh, Lovecraft of the Apocalypse trilogy, I, I would say. Um, and like a lot of... Uh, Carpenter. I mean, a lot of Lovecraft stories. This starts at an insane asylum. I, I don't want to backtrack too far on that, but I do agree that it's the most Lovecraftian. I think people, at least like not not inherently like a shallow read, but people see like tentacles and like weird monsters, and they're like, "Oh, that's Lovecraft." And it's like, yeah, that's part of it, but that's that's not the only thing of it, you know. Thematically, I wouldn't say it's carved, but it plays into like the the style of a Lovecraft story a little more. I mean, it's it's literally like hitting you with you know staples of car of uh, Lovecraft stories. Um, but it, it's more, I don't know what the word would be like self involved. You know, it's very meta, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
um, which uh, Lovecraft never got super meta. Yeah. I don't know. Someone probably disagrees with me, but. No, he was too busy uh, hating black people, I guess. Oh, yeah. He was, he was literally hating every race on the planet Earth. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a great thing when you find out about Lovecraft eventually. It's like he was looking into these unknown horrors of mankind. He's like, no, he was just scared of, like, people with different colored skin. <laughs> yeah, he was scared of immigrants. I mean, hold, I, like, we're, we won't get too into it, but holy shit, Lovecraft was racist. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, like, it's not even, like, product of his time racist. Like, <laughs> it is racist. <laughs> he birthed an entire mythology out of just his racism. Yeah. Like, that's nuts. <laughs> and I think that it, it makes it more interesting that, um, like, because he, you know, in his mind, he was probably not trying to write very political work, but... Being such a racist, he inadvertently made his works very political in a way that has gotten a lot of people to interpret and reimagine his style differently. And I think that's very interesting. You know, it ends up turning his creations into thematic tools that um, I totally got lost to my own fucking point. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though? Like, yeah, yeah. It got other people to look at his work politically and then make their own work inspired by him. Which, um, isn't Lovecraft Country being produced by Jordan Peele right now? I believe so. And both Jordan Peele and James Wan, because Aquaman kind of gets the big Lovecraft monster stuff for sure, Mm -hmm. they both, like, gone on record saying, like, like, yeah, like, no shit, he was super racist. So they're, like, in kind of, like, a rebuke of his work and, like, being better from it, they're, they're finding ways to, like, incorporate their own like staples into it and you know being people of color that's kind of like i think a a great evolution of the work like Mm -hmm. moving past the confines of his racist outlooks on things yeah like i don't know i I just think it's really neat well i think it's got to be difficult to be like a genre fan if you're a person of color because a lot of it is very white dominated you know Mm-hmm. Like at at best, it's it's dominated by white voices, white male voices, and then at worst, it's overtly racist. <laughs> so I can imagine that's a struggle. Uh, but we should definitely get into the story now because we're about thirty minutes into recording. So we open up in the insane asylum with uh, Sam Neill's John Trent character, and I I just want to go into Sam Neill. I'm sorry. Let me. That's fine. No, no. Sam Neill's great in this. Uh, I love Sam Neill from. Many people know him from Jurassic Park and uh, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. You, a lot of Taika Waititi stuff now, which is which I think is great. He's kind of got this renaissance going on. Uh, he also played Damien in Omen 3. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my God. That's a bad movie. Is it? I haven't. Uh, I, I have no recollection. I was super into the Omen movies as a kid, but even I didn't really like 3. Oh, wow. Um, All right, yeah, cool. Omen was a, a big part of my childhood, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> All right, well, well, now you have uh, In the Mouth of Madness, which is nothing like Omen 3, I guess. Well, David Warner is in uh, The Omen. He gets his head cut off. Right. And that's that, I have to bring that up because that's I've, that image has never left my brain. <laughs> I think it was the first decapitation I ever saw in a movie. Uh, we'll get to it, but there are images in this movie that definitely have stuck with me. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we have to talk about the asylum a little more. Yeah, um, we should mention that the um, person running it uh, the asylum is John Glover playing a character named Mr. S- Mr. Saperstein. And for those who know, Dr. Saperstein is from uh, Rosemary's Baby, of course. And we have uh, John Trent begging that he is not insane. I mean, you know, it's very uh, simple stuff. And of course, and he's now an inmate at the asylum. 
um, Saberstein plays We've Only Just Begun to Live to calm all the patients down and they all start singing along. Um, which I feel is very appropriate. And then we get our first supernatural moment. A scare, like right off the bat, we get a nightmare sequence where um, we don't know it yet, but Sutter Kane's uh, spirit comes to visit John Trent in the asylum. Trent says, this is a rotten way to end it. And it says, this isn't the end. You haven't read it yet. And then we get the flash of events. That's when, when David Warner shows up. He shows up that uh, night. So he's only been there for like one day. There's there's this talk of like this mass epidemic of madness going on around the world. But we don't really know what's causing it. And the guy's like, look, this he has all the symptoms. But there's kind of a hint that he might be there for another reason he's from some sort of agency but they never say i don't believe they ever say where he's from he's uh he's showing up because you know saperstein's going to him's like wow it must be getting crazy out there if they're bringing people like you in um i just think it's interesting it's a really good way to set up the movie that there's like this ominousness happening around the whole story we will hear it throughout the rest of the movie just constant talks of more like bursts of violence or riots like it just feels like the world is ending already mm. Which it seems, which it very much is, um, and he talks to Trent. Trent has, of course, drawn crosses all over himself. He did, he did his whole cell in one afternoon, <laughs> which is pretty funny. I mean, yeah, it's a little, it's a little silly, but it's also like the fact that he's that far gone. You know, like if you really want to read into that, mm. is uh, is definitely, I think, as unsettling as it is funny. And he asks, "You want to know about them, no, don't you?" He's like, "Everyone has an it, they, a them." And then, because uh, I want to know how you got here. The flashback leads us to uh, uh, Trent having lunch with a colleague, an owner of an insurance company, which was the uh, a New York-based Arcane Publishing. Well, we just see him. He just finishes dealing with a case about a guy who burned his warehouse down. <laughs> uh, played by Peter Jason, who people recognize. And the guy hiring him uh, is, uh, oh God, what's the actor's name? Um, Bernie Casey, he was uh, Mr. Ryan and Bill and Ted. And uh, there's this great image, like a casual slow build to something that's just fucking insane. Uh, in the middle of their conversation, they're both attacked by a man with an axe who breaks the window and asks Trent if he reads Sutter Kane. He is shot dead before he can actually hurt anybody. But uh, we find out that the man was actually Sutter Kane's agent. Yes. And uh, he killed his family after reading one of Sutter Kane's books. It's, it's a very unsettling moment, but it's also, like, fucking awesome that it exists. No, it's a, it's a really great moment. And this is where we get um, one of the repeats from, you know, Carpenter's other work. It's, like, the gang and uh, the, the psycho, like, cult gang in, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, in Assault on Precinct 13. Oh yeah, uh, um, the the cults, I guess. I don't know. They're, yeah, they're basically it's, zombies. It's, yeah, they're close as you can be to zombies. And then uh, the uh, street crazies in uh, Prince of Darkness. Um, you start getting some similar vibes uh, with this agent um, breaking in, which is like the first of kind of like repeat themes coming in um, from Carpenter's other work. We should talk about John Trent as a character a little bit, though. He's an insurance investigator. He tries to see people who have. Uh, defrauded insurance companies pulling some sort of scam you know like we talked about the guy burning his warehouse down a very cynical person um he believes that if anyone can think of it people can be capable of anything he's basically you know um he's kind of like a noir character (laughs) 
We don't see it, but he talks about how on the on his first case that he slept with the dude's wife. And he's always smoking cigarettes, and he's always like, yeah, I don't trust no one. Another one gets the best of me. People are shit. Uh, I have two thoughts on the Trent character. One, is that kind of a John Carpenter stand-in? Like, not in a masturbatory way, just the attitude, I guess? No, I, I, I do think that he is kind of a Carpenter stand-in, but it's interesting that the ultimate joke ends up being on him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's not a, it's definitely not masturbatory. And two, did John Carpenter ever want to do like a noir mystery type film? Um, I mean, he kind of does, you know, he does very manly characters mm-hmm. um, in a way that sometimes works as like a deconstruction. Um, but he, you can tell he's just a fan of those type of like male heroes. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he ever was in the running of doing a straight-up noir film. I know he always wanted to do a Western, and he never got that chance. Um, I know he wanted to do a lot more than horror films and was just never really given the opportunity. Yeah, lot, lots of interviews have him talk about how, like, oh, they they want you to do one thing and one thing only, and it's hard to break out of that. And It's always kind of a bummer to hear. Um, but I, th- I do think you're onto something. I did feel something very similar um, with John Trent kind of being a carpenter stand-in. And watching him kind of react to everything that's going on and talking about how fake and full of shit it is. He talks about it. <laughs> he really does like exposing people, which you could even say that's what Carpenter has been trying to do with his career. Mm-hmm. I mean, he likes exposing hidden underbellies of like horror and violence going on, like either within people or within our society. Because, of course, we do live in a society. You know, we're living in a society. What about John Carpenter's Joker? Well, he's writing a comic. About what? <laughs> the Joker. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't pick it huh. up just because I'm out of comics like completely at the moment. But yeah, he got tapped to do like a one-off or something. Hey, now, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, he's been writing comics a lot lately. I didn't know that. I saw that, but I just, I, again, I've also, I only pick up like a few comics every now and then. Because <laughs> goddamn, is that an expensive habit. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I'm sure his Joker thing will at least be about something and not about everything. <laughs> it's it's about everything to the point of nothing, and that's all I have to say about that. Because I've I've I'm proud to say I've steered away from the discourse. Can I just ask this real quick? Uh huh. Is is there a term I've been using it in my mind? I've been calling them shotgun movies, but there's got to be a better term for it. Where there, I feel like we're getting these movies. Where they try to do like every idea imaginable in one go. And it seems to work on a certain group of people because then people come away from it being like, oh, wow, it's, you know, it's about blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, no, the movie's about, it never picks what it wants to be about. <laughs> do you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. I, I think I've just been calling them like vomit draft movies, you know, like for people that don't know the term vomit draft is when you sit down to write a screenplay and it's like, I don't know everything I should going into this, but I want to get something out there that works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. All writers are different. Uh, like I'm convinced that attack of the clones was a vomit draft, you know, cause that's like 80 different movies. Aquaman probably didn't, didn't go through that many rewrites. And I think that movie works completely through the direction. So like, uh, yeah, vomit draft. I'd probably say, and I've read the the Joker screenplay, and I would I would say that's a vomit draft. <laughs> Although they definitely did change some stuff. 
I think it was Scorsese that like I think it's his quote where it's like movies are about what's in the frame and what isn't, you know. And I feel like everyone's too focused on putting shit in the frame. <laughs> There's no idea about what shouldn't be in it, you know. Yeah. Like movies now, they come home with you more than they used to, because they're all designed to just keep to keep people talking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, because. I think who's the, one of the fucking like disgusting people running one of the video game companies um, made a comment where it was like, back in the day, you used to buy a game and then you would just own it. And now video games are continually growing experiences. And I feel like they're trying to do that with movies too. Like now there's a whole economy built on just discussing the movies. And it's just this weird perpetuation of things where it's designed to take up as much of your life as possible. Which is why I think people react so violently when you criticize it because you're basically telling people that their lives are pointless. But it's like a mania that's coming back with people. And I think that kind of taps into this movie, to be honest. Because we start hearing about how Sutter Kane's works are, like, affecting people's minds. And, like, driving people crazy. You know what I'm saying? You just broke my mind with this movie. Like, you opened a pathway that I didn't even realize was there. Like, this whole other layer that this movie taps into. This is a movie about how the publishing industry destroys the universe. (laughs) This isn't wrong. (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, this movie wasn't exactly low on my Carpenter rankings, but I just found a whole new appreciation through this discussion right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about this, too, with... uh... (laughs) Because uh, I was thinking about Dracula recently. I mentioned uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula earlier. But in, in the novel and in that film, Dracula's big plan is to buy up real estate around London. In, in the time, Dracula's kind of a really bad metaphor about the fear of immigrants. It also is this really interesting thing where, I think unintentionally, Dracula's like this ancient evil, you know? Yeah. And he's just been waiting, and his way that he can get into society and take over the world is through real estate. I think that's very interesting. <laughs> and here Sutter Kane starts getting into the starts getting his evil ideas into the world through writing, through publishing, <laughs> through mass marketing, you know, novels. <laughs> it's kind of a dig at Stephen King in a way. <laughs> oh wow. You know what? I wish more revival theaters played this then. Especially now because there are like three Stephen King adaptations a year. Oh yeah, like I feel like this would be our. This should have a big boom that it it doesn't seem to have gotten yet, like some other Carpenter films. Well, again, this is I think we're in this era again. Talk about fans not going very deep with the works that they enjoy because um, a lot of these remakes are coasting off the idea that the original got it wrong. You know. Mm-hmm. Which can be debatable or whatever, you can talk about that. But the solution that these movies end up being is not to get deeper at all. They just do more of the book, (laughs) you know? They just put more in. They don't go into any of the ideas at all. And that's why, like, The Shining kind of ends up being the best Stephen King adaptation, because it just took the ideas of it and, like, fleshed them out into something. And it, but it, it did that by basically gutting the book, which I think more adaptations should do, because then the book ends up being something you can enjoy, and the movie ends up being something you can enjoy. Honestly, yeah. Uh, what did what did I see recently that I really? Oh, Annihilation. Annihilation. Yes, yeah. the, the movie and the book are very different, but 
I really like that I can appreciate both in different ways. You know, they're doing different things with the same, like, rough outline. They kind of veer off at the end there. Uh, but I, I think that's actually to the, their benefits as well. Just, like, why wouldn't people want that? I, I That's what I struggle with with this stuff. I don't know why people want the same thing again. Well, because now yeah. it's about, it's it's like checking boxes in our brains or some shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we're like, oh, we got all the moments we wanted. <laughs> oh, God, that's totally a problem with the, the bigger budget stuff now. And But it's not just, but it's also, it, it extends to adaptations of books where it's like, well, they put, you know, all the stuff from the book where it's like, oh, the Paul Bunyan statue made it into it. Oh, fucking God. Like, well, just because you put it in there doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and again, I, get, I think that comes back to this work because a lot of, they talk about uh, Sutter Kane's work kind of being just the same idea over and over again. And it kind of, you know, but it worms its way into your brain and it starts changing how you see reality. And I think we're seeing that with these fucking, like, big budget movies that are all becoming the same goddamn thing. Oh, this is really depressing. Yeah, hey. (laughs) Welcome to my world, motherfucker. We just have to figure out if we can let go of capitalism or if we're just going to give in to corporate fascism. I'm happy to say I think most people, like, the general public at least, is starting to reject those ideals at least. I just uh, hope I, everyone I think the realize... people in power are not really allowing that. Yeah, I think, pe- I think people need to realize it's going to turn into a street fight at some point. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. That's the direction it's going. It's the only way we're going to do it. It's unfortunate, but that's what's got to happen. And frankly, I'm a little excited. Not in like a mass chaos way. I don't want to come across like I'm the Joker or fucking little <laughs> finger being like, chaos is a ladder. It's not not that. I just think that there's, a, there's an emptiness to modern life right now. And I think, you know, mass social movements would be a good counteraction to that. I think, it, I think it'll end up being very fulfilling to a lot of people. Julie Carmen's in this movie. Oh, yes, she is. Julie Carmen from the ever-popular hit film Fright Night 2. Yes. A movie three people in the world have been able to track down. One of them is me. She plays... That's a great movie, by the way, if you get your hands on it. Yeah. Uh, um, Julie uh, Carmen plays Linda Stiles, who is Sutter Kane's editor. And uh, behind her is another actor. I don't know if uh, he ever went on to do much. Just a guy named Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston is like a minor character in a John Carpenter film. What's he doing here? He is the Arclane publishing director, Jackson Harglow. And he's the guy who uh, who hires Trent to investigate uh, Sutter Kane's disappearance. And he's the one who uh, also tells him to allow Linda Stiles to accompany him, the Julie Carmen character. Yeah, when they eventually go looking for him together, before that he kind of bums around, you know, trying to figure out, you know, get any clues. Because all we know at this point is that Sutter Kane's missing. And he thinks it's some sort of publicity stuff. I mean, John Trent's kind of a dope, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of male dopes in John Carpenter works. Yeah, that's what I really uh, find fascinating, too. Because, I mean, like... Obviously, I, I bring up Michael Mann in every opportunity, and his films are are about, like, masculinity in ways that are, like, confining often, you know? Like, it's, it's rarely very freeing to be a man of, like, duty in a, in a Michael Mann film. And in John Carpenter films, it's like, oh, yeah, manly men and, and uh, Howard Hoxian women 
and uh, everyone's competent, but the men are also idiots a lot of the time. Yeah. Like uh, Big Trouble in Little China is probably the best example of that mm. ever, <laughs> uh, which is a great film, and I might prefer it to this one. I don't know. I'm not going to compare those two. They're very different. It's hard to it's hard to compare the two. Yeah. I mean, just just Carpenter made like so many great movies. Yeah. It's like you would call The Fog like Lesser Carpenter, but even that's like a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is apparently a, a, a family film to him. He, he wanted that to be PG. <laughs> and I mean, like, you know what? Sure. Let, yeah, let, not wrong. Let kids get really scared. I wouldn't disagree. No. Uh, that's, no, that's a little a, harsher. <laughs> but... I mean, I watched all his movies as a kid. This was my childhood. <laughs> I saw The Thing when I was five years old. Oh, a little earlier than me, but... Shit happens. Yeah, yeah. I just feel bad for all the friends I made watch it with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess we're going to point out, John Trent, you know, he's like, yeah, I think it's a hoax, they're Sutter Kane, you know. Oh, find out where Sutter Kane is and you win a lunchbox or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he even thinks, he explicitly says that he thinks that the axe-wielding agent was also <laughs> part of the scam. The the one who was gunned down in the street. <laughs> gunned down, trying to murder him. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> he thinks that's also part of it somehow. Yeah, definitely dope, but competent, again, enough to to recognize um, some lines on, on some of Sutter Kane's book covers, and then he aligns them to, to form the outline of New Hampshire, which uh, leads him to, oddly enough, one of these settings in, in Sutter Kane's fictional works. I want to talk about uh, the... Uh... The whole sequence of him putting that stuff together where he, uh, you know, he gets hired. He, and then there's that scene in the alley where he sees a cop beating the shit out of some kid spraying graffiti. Um, which it looks like the kid was going to write Kane um, on the wall, but it ends up being a different message later. It's this weird thing where it ends up becoming like a repeated thing. He sees a poster for the Hobbs End Horror, um, one of uh, Kane's other novels, and he tries to like look behind it. That's like a repeated thing of his character trying to look behind things. Including uh, taking the book covers apart. And he ends up reading, you know, he starts reading some of Sutter Kane's stuff, trying to put things together. And he's like, it's kind of the same stuff, but it does have an effect on you. And we start seeing that he starts getting, like, a headache. Which is also a throwback to They Live, where when you wore the glasses that showed you what was really going on for too long, you would get a headache. <laughs> the de-brainwashing glasses. So I don't know what, it's like, this idea that if you once you can see this other level of reality, it starts having a personal effect on you. But then he, he he has that nightmare sequence with the cop. That's a really effective scene, in my opinion. I th I think he's totally tapping into that they live thing again. Like uh, I think we talked about recently the 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 fight the the street brawl that that's in they live like the five minute one. That's yeah, it's great and hilarious and awesome. But it's also like a struggle to break free from like. Well, I want to stress that's not my that's not either of our ideas. That's fucking that guy whose name i can never remember yeah <laughs> uh, Slavon i think is his name a film critic guy crazy person yeah but interesting interesting idea and i think if you can apply that here then at least the earlier parts of the film are kind of about like the struggle of um of trent to kind of break free from that or like at least unknowingly he's breaking free from it and it's Starting to fuck him up. Well, it's weird because he doesn't end up... He's not breaking free at all. He's realizing he's a slave. It's like the... It's 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 interesting. Because, um, I, I mean, they live. They also don't really break free. They just see the truth of what's going on. They see the real trappings around them, which could be what's happening with 
Trent. But I gotta say, there's some interesting editing going on with that nightmare sequence where, you know, he'll, he, he has the nightmare, and then he wakes up and, like, kind of rubs his eyes, but then he's suddenly back in the nightmare. We don't actually see him fall asleep again. It's, like, really quick, and then there's the scene where there's, like, a bloody murder in the nightmare. We get visions of shit that's gonna happen later. Then he wakes up again, but then the nightmare cop is next to him, which is a really scary shot, which is also very similar to the final scare of, uh, Prince of Darkness. Well, what makes someone like Carpenter really great is that you can keep going back at different stages of your life and getting more out of his work. I think that's a testament of great art and a great filmmaker. Uh, more than some other things. Yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot of comments going around lately about, like, theme parks and fast food rides. And, you know, I appreciate those, too. You know, I love a good, greasy American cheeseburger. Make me feel like a piece of shit. You don't want it for every meal. Yeah, I think there's a health issues with that. And you don't want it being force-fed down everyone. Yeah, I'd like options. Is I think the the claim you don't want it to become so ever present that you're getting secondhand secondhand cheeseburger because that's <laughs> fucking shit, man. I think we've done actually a pretty good job of hopping around the direct topic there. So bravo to us. Um, but like you said, he put he puts together there's a map, um, and it leads to uh, Hobbs End, um, one of his loca- one of Sutter Kane's locations in New Hampshire, as you said, New England, which is of course the setting for a lot of. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft stories, and then later Maine would, of course, become a setting for tons of Stephen King stories. And there is something about that area. I don't know what it is. That's a, it's a weird part of the country that kind of bursts these creepy ideas. I don't know why. <laughs> something about the Adirondacks and shit. Well, that's because uh, that eastern coast region, the founding of America, which is, of course, a horrifying event in and of itself. Oh, yeah, there's that, but, but that, those are all the untapped, there's a lot of the untapped areas, like, up north, you know? Actually, no, because I've only been to New York and uh, Boston. Well, I think it's that thing of, like, it preserves some of, like, the ancientness of America, because, like, you know, we got here, like, by we, I mean white people, and we got here, and... Yeah, that's mostly you guys. The, the land looked very untouched, you know? And it ended up scaring us in a weird way. We like that's we get all these fucking Puritans believing like this country's full of demons and shit <laughs> and witches. I mean, we get here and within like fifty years there's a witch trial. Like that's not great. <laughs> that's not a great way to start off America. Pretty much everything America did when it was establishing itself is like, hey, that wasn't great. <laughs> Do you realize, like, if America ended tomorrow, it would have contributed nothing good to the world? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not even, like, a 300-year-old country, and it's, you know... Like, it's, like, Declaration of Independence, baseball, and jazz. <laughs> and that's it. And then the film industry, but the film industry is such a slave of capitalism that I don't think it's fully broken free yet. And to bring that back into the book, there's an interesting uh, quote where uh, he's, like, he puts together the map, and he's, like, all right, we gotta go to New Hampshire... And uh, Charlton Eston's like, all right, whatever. He says, I only care about getting our property if Sutter Kane is dead. Getting, no, what was it? He's like, he wants our, his insurance claim if Sutter Kane is dead and his property if Sutter Kane's alive because Sutter Kane owes them a manuscript for his new novel, In the Mouth of Madness, which has yet to come out. To the point where it's sparking riots that it hasn't been released yet. So Trent and Styles go on their road trip to New Hampshire. Uh, we get a, we get another really scary uh, sequence on the way to Hobbs End with uh, the kid on the bike. 
I watched this movie for the first time at like, you know, the other perfect way to watch John Carpenter films like at midnight. <laughs> and that scene really freaked me out with this kid who's stuck on this infinite loop of riding his bicycle apparently. Uh, uh I, I think of... Carpenter has cuz I mean, we see we see the kid age and shit. And uh, I think Carpenter's been a little um not like pissy about the old age makeup, but I think he's said that he's not like he's not the happiest about it and Whatever, I, I think it actually is, it's effective. I think is the thing. It's not great, but it it in a, in in a way it it makes it creepier because mm-hmm. it doesn't look human. <laughs> you know, like it's it's like the kid doesn't hasn't just aged; he's like turned into like another being. I guess the point I just want to make there is that you don't need things to look real; you need them to be effective. Yeah, you know, and th- this film is very much not real, but it's very effective. Although I gotta say, the practical effects in this movie are some of the best. It's one of those ones that makes you kind of upset that practical effects kind of came to an end in the 90s, because it shows you, like, it just makes you think what they could be doing now if it kept going. Because mm-hmm. some of the stuff in this looks just fantastic. Um, the big one at the end, but the monster in the greenhouse is one of my favorites. Because um, it's, like, just in the background at first, and then you get, like, kind, like as good a look at it edit as you can get and it's really effective okay so even after they they arrive at hobbs end they're traveling through the night it's important to note. so when they see the kid aging it's like uh it's, it's very easy to hide the effects at least and to, to cut around that um which i think still makes it more effective because it really feels like they're not passing through like a road it feels like they're passing through like a dimension almost and when they arrive at hobbs end what's weird about it matt I don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, it's daylight. Yes, okay, I guess that's where I should start. Yeah, it's uh, daylight, which is Well, she goes odd. through a literal portal. <laughs> <laughs> which is that thing, I think that's the thing where, like, Carpenter loses some people, where his his ideas become very actualized, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no metaphorical portal happening here. <laughs> There's no, like, oh, suddenly she makes a turn, and they go through a bridge, and it's daylight, and, um, but there's, like, literally, like, a rip in, like, space and time. <laughs> and I think that's the stuff that kind of, like, you know, people want to be like, actually, I prefer it if it was done a different way, and I'm like, I prefer it if you shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. Uh, we, we talk a lot about, like, movies on here, obviously, but, like, uh. What else would we talk about on here? (laughs) But, like, film criticism and stuff like that. And, like, if something's just not your cup of tea, that's fine. But if you're saying, like, the way they approach the movie should have been done completely differently, generally, I will agree that people should shut the fuck up. Because it's, like, you have to understand what the movie wants to do first and, like, what the filmmakers and the crew are trying to to make from it. Meet them on their terms and decide things afterwards, you know? But if you're just saying, like, well, I wish this was... (laughs) This is like, I don't know, Werner Herzog or some shit, I don't know. Now, the thing about the Alien prequels that, like, even though I don't really like them, it's more they're just not my cup of tea. I wouldn't say they're objectively bad movies, I just like ribbing people about them. Yeah, one person, me. Yeah, exactly. It's very easy to rib you, because you like everything. Except Alien vs. Predator Requiem, which was the actual good one we watched. Oh my god. It's a great premise, it's just they made a movie bad. (laughs) So, such a well done movie. I hate you. Such a fucking great movie. Liam, if you're listening to this, I'm looking forward to the Skyline sequel. Hey, yeah. <laughs> I still haven't bothered to watch anything else those guys did. No, no, no. Liam O'Donnell, he's like one of their VFX guys and co-writers. Uh, 
he he almost did AVP three. He should have. I would. I'm I'm a fan of of Beyond Skyline. Everyone, go check it out. I'm gonna go petition uh, 20th Century Fox, a subsidiary of Disney, and gonna be like, stop with this alien prequel shit. Do AVP three. <laughs> no, I I got I got a a whole thesis on what that needs to do. There's properly. so many of these empowered nerds online right now where they're like, we're getting studios to listen to us. It's so bad. <laughs> They're not listening to you. They want your money, you fool. <laughs> they don't give a damn about you. I saw a fucking thing going around saying that we should all support the Sonic movie because the studio listened to us to fix Sonic. <laughs> and I was like, what are you out of your mind? Well, I mean, capitalism just gotten to the point where it's just rotted people's brains to the point of, like, thinking that it actually does work for them instead of just a handful of people in power. Yeah, but I think this is that it can only be a mentality of like literal children. <laughs> Even after all the weird shit that's occurred, Trent's still like, "No, nah, this is like a, a ploy. This is this is a a, a staged play for for more um, sales for Arcane Publishing or whatever the fuck." Yeah, it's all it's all part of some scam. It's just the town. It's all fake. Everything is something. But Styles is genuinely worried at this point. I think it might have had something to do with traveling through an interdimensional portal. <laughs> she tells Trent that at first it was a scam, but uh, now it's getting a little weird and out of hand. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, traveling through the portal might have set that off. And also that Hobbs End's not supposed to exist. Yeah, Hobbs End's not supposed to be real. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> um but, he, you know, he thinks it's a scam, whatever. He's not bright. Um, they end up staying at the Pikmin Hotel, run by Mrs. Pikmin. Um, we got to bring that up for two reasons. One, um, Mrs. Pikmin is played by Francis Bay, who we just talked about on our uh, Happy Gilmore episode. Shut up, you old pig! Hey, check out Happy Amblin. And also, uh, the name, the Mrs. Pikmin and Pikmin Hotel, comes from uh, the H.P. Lovecraft story, Pikmin's Model. Which, if you want to read something scary for Halloween, I would read Pikmin's model. It's got a hell of a final line. <laughs> There's actually a quote in here that is lifted directly from a uh, Lovecraft story. Uh, when they go to the Black Church um, that sits on the edge of town. Also, that's a really interesting... I feel like this is a shot. Because this is one of those movies that was, quote-unquote, uh, very well-received overseas. It made some top ten lists in Japan... In, uh, not in Japan, in France... Um, but there's a shot in this where they're in the hotel room and they're debating about what's real and what isn't. And he points out one window and he's like, look, reality. And then she points out the other window and points at the church. And it's like, one window leads to reality, one leads to fiction. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I could see this being a huge hit in France. <laughs> yes. But there's a quote when they go to the black church. Uh, I think it's that the seat of an evil older than mankind and wider than the known universe. I think that's from a Lovecraft story. That black church is pretty cool looking, though. I just want to point that out. <laughs> uh, it's got great production design, and I think as uh, as time went on, something happened with John Carpenter's... Uh, maybe just the way movies got made, like, they changed too much for him to, like, acclimate to, I guess. But, uh, like, Ghost of Mars costs, like, three times as much as this, and it looks like it costs half as much as this. Uh, so, don't know what's going on there. I'm being honest. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Um, but I don't, you know what, though? Like, this is going to sound weird. I kind of like the look of Ghosts of Mars. 
Oh no, I love it. Again, I'm a fan. Like I think it's a style. It just it's the the weaker parts are really the, are the script in that case. And which Carpenter, I mean, I think routinely Carpenter ends up with some weak scripts sometimes. Like the movies I like, They Live's a great movie, but it's also a movie that kind of runs out of steam like halfway through. <laughs> And this kind of becomes like, all right, we're going to run into the building and blow up the satellite. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, you were going somewhere interesting with it. And then, <laughs> all right. <laughs> but it's like, you like he probably just didn't have the resources to take it anywhere. Um, but again, yeah, it is weird that they, he, when he does get the resources, it still kind of stays the same. I don't know. But uh, no, I just like, I, I really like the look of this church um, with the mosaic of Jesus on it. Actually, we're depicting the war in heaven for... Heaven and Earth. I'm sure that means something. And that's when we get we get our first reveal of Sutter Kane at the church uh, when the townspeople show up um, looking for their children. The the lead townsperson um, is the also uh, I think the guy who was uh, what's the evil painting's name in Ghostbusters too? Oh God, I don't know. Well, it's that guy. <laughs> Everyone remembers Ghostbusters too, right? With the slime and the Statue of Liberty and. Uh, not not to derail us as we're over an hour recording already, but that's what like was so shocking to me. And everyone's like, "2016 Ghostbusters is going to ruin the franchise." And I was like, "You know they made a sequel, right?" Yeah, you know Ghostbusters like, Two exists, right? <laughs> like you've seen it, right? And again, that's again to bring it back to this whole thing of like all this stuff from the '80s. I think has infected everyone's brains because all these people remember the the fucking cartoon more than the fucking movies, you know. Especially for our generation, that cartoon was like that one stuck around. Yeah, and but it's like like I when I was a kid, I liked Ghostbusters, but I didn't know the cartoon at all. Then I get like all these like people who are like ten years older than me who still have all their Ghostbusters toys, and I'm like, well, good for you. I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to judge too hard. Yeah, like 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 what you like, but also maybe don't have this cultish, slavish devotion to things that companies use to make money. 30 years ago. So many of these things were literally just toy ads. Like, Ghostbusters had a little more going for it. Like, He-Man and Transformers. They were all just to sell toys, man. And the fucking weirder thing is that He-Man and My Little Pony and not Transformers, unfortunately. Um, they've tried with Transformers, but it hasn't worked. They've all kind of become, like, different things. Like, people have tried to reinterpret them, and there's now, like, interesting stuff coming out of what were basically just commercials. And the fans react super negatively to it. This ties more into John Carpenter, too, because he's very... He doesn't romanticize the industry. Like, obviously, he's a dude who loves movies and loved making them. Not just that, he doesn't he doesn't romanticize his own career. Yeah, but at the end of the day, he does treat it like a job, you know? Like, again, you can love your job, but even something you love, like, doing is, is going to turn into a job at some point. It doesn't have to stay that way. I'm just saying, like... A job's a job with all yes. that entails. And uh, he, he has been very outspoken against, like we said, Reagan and stuff like that. And I think that's why he's also a big fan of Halloween 3, which his buddy directed, Tommy Lee Wallace. And not just because it's his buddy, but like we talked about on our Halloween 3 episode last year, there was some very pointed commentary <laughs> against uh, certain American institutions and and figureheads. I mean, the villain is like a straight-up Walt Disney type. Yeah. Yeah, no, and although, to talk about jobs, if you want to get some funny interviews, look up any interview with John Carpenter talking about the original Halloween. 
where he's just like, man, it was a fucking work for hire. They gave me $300,000. They said I could do what I won. <laughs> he's, he's not romantic about it in any way. But again, I think that's what what confuses people when they try to say he's apolitical, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, I also think, to bring it back, there's this, there's a really good scene in uh, They Live where uh, Roddy Roddy Piper, um, he's talking with Keith David, and he was like, when I was a kid, my dad uh, took me out to the woods, like, kicked my ass, told me how the world was. And they're kind of talking about, you know, being working men and stuff like that. And then there's like a moment where he's like, and now it's not like that anymore. Maybe it never really was. Like, maybe it was all bullshit. And I think that's kind of a Carpenter thing where he's like, he realizes that there's a really is a hollowness at the core of a lot of America. <laughs> that that's just, yeah, it is a job. And that sucks. <laughs> and I think any, there's a lot of those old hippie types who like, they're really disillusioned because there was so much hope in the late 60s, early 70s, and then it just all died. Yeah, Carpenter notoriously unromanticizes everything about not just the industry, but his own career. Uh, except when he talks about They Live. Go find interviews with him talking about They Live, even recent ones. He, he always has something to say. Sometimes he repeats points because people just end up asking him similar questions because, of course, that's just bound to happen. But uh, watch him talk about that versus Halloween. You see a different sort of spark of life coming out of that man. And I just think that's very interesting. That might be like his most personal film in a in a fun way. Well, that's a very, I mean, it's a movie that it just doesn't pull its punches in any way. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's really no cuteness about They Live. Like, even though the end is like, I mean, like there's like a little like 10 minute street fight. And then there's a, there's, I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. <laughs> and it stars a wrestler and ends in like a shootout. It's a movie that's just like, no, this it, corporatism sucks. Like, it's just not subtle about it in any way. Also, I think he has been, he's been pushing back because it's, it was kind of co-opted by uh, conspiracy theorists and like anti-Semites. Uh, oh, that's right. Um, he made a big statement a little while back where he was like, anyone that says uh, um, they live is about Jews controlling the world, it's, it's slander. I'm not sure if Alex Jones has ever talked about it, they live, but there was a guy named uh, David Icke, who's one of those people that believes like the royal family and like the Bush family and the Clintons, they're all secretly reptilians. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And that they control the world, they're reptilians from other dimensions and shit like that. And he talks about they live a lot because, <laughs> you know, they live, he re- it reveals all the monsters underneath people. Um, which is also, I gotta say, I love they live. And it's weird that the In the Mouth of Madness episode is also kind of a They Live episode. But uh, the, the the monster thing doesn't totally make sense in They Live. <laughs> because they're like, partly they're transformed people, but also they're aliens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was probably the weakest aspect in terms of like the logic of the film. Well, I think that's also a thing with just Carpenter where it's like, his movies are extremely messy, I would say, but they're just so well done. You know, like, 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 there's such a, like, an exactness to him, and that I think critics always got too hung up on how messy they are. And I feel myself feeling that way about some other directors. Like, I, I'm trying to push back against that when it comes to people like Zack Snyder, where I watch his movies and I'm like, good lord, this is a fucking mess. And But it's like, I'm trying to be like, well, what's beyond that, you know? Because I feel like Zack Snyder too often gets dismissed, you know, which I'm, I'm totally part of it too of just outright dismissal um when it comes to pointing out that he's a very sometimes his movies are very flawed 
and whereas you get the Marvel movies, which are very well-oiled machines, and they mean nothing, and then you feel nothing watching them. Well, I think that's certainly an aspect that Carpenter has also called himself out on. He's rarely confronted the the messiness. I'm more talking about like his tonal control. Like he's got a very consistent mood and atmosphere, and very rarely, at least until later, did his films kind of like stutter and stop once in a while. There's an old interview that's kind of been making the rounds lately in film Twitter where he's on set for Halloween. He's being interviewed by someone from BBC or something. It's a, it's a lovely little interview, but uh, they ask him, like, oh, what, what films are you watching? He's like, I, I watch a lot of older movies. And, of course, he mentions Howard Hawks, which he does in almost every interview ever, <laughs> which I think is just great, you know? Like, that must have been annoying at some point. Well, it's also a way of pointing out that you should, if you're listening to this, you should watch some Howard Hawks mu- movies because Howard Hawks was great. Yeah, like, I, I barely started getting into him more, but Rio Bravo is probably the best entry point, at least I think. Oh, yeah, Rio Bravo is fantastic. Yeah, that's one of the best movies ever. Um, but anyways, he was, the, uh, the interviewer pushed and was like, uh, any, like, contemporary stuff? And he's like, mm, no, not really. And he's like, what about Spielberg or George Lucas? And he's like, nah, I'm not a fan. I thought Jaws was a good film. I thought uh, Sp- uh, Lucas made a, a great film with American Graffiti, but I didn't like Close Encounters. I thought it was, like, a bad film. It got away from him, and I like films that are very controlled, and I'm like, I love Carpenter, but, you know, I've also seen, like, <laughs> John Carpenter movies, so I'm like, I don't, I, don't get, I don't get that entirely, and he had a big comment about Altman, actually, Robert Altman, where he said that he was, uh, he thought his films were masturbatory, and that they're, they're a little too self-satisfied, uh, and I don't know, just, he's a hard dude to nail down. In a, in a lot of ways, but he's also completely predictable in other ways. So <laughs> he's he's fascinating to me. I'm not I'm not exactly I'm not exactly shocked about the Altman comments, to be honest. All right. Um, I mean, Altman's a very I think Altman's kind of a divisive filmmaker for some. I mean, I like I'm I'm one of those I like Altman, but I'm also not like I know people that like worship at the altar of Altman, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm definitely not that. I like Popeye, <laughs> like. <laughs> like Popeye is my favorite Altman movie, which I think would get me beaten up in some circles. No, no, on film Twitter, anything is possible. You're good. I know. Yeah, there's always a gang you can find, but we're a small gang, so <laughs> you should see Popeye. <laughs> what about your contemporaries, Lucas Spielberg, De Palma? I don't care for them. Uh, but to get back to the weirdness of In the Mouth of Madness, uh, did we talk about Linda going in the church already? Yeah, they, they end up separating at some point. Linda believes that if you read the end of the story, maybe they can figure out a way to get out of it. She's like, we're in a story, we gotta get out of it. And Trent's still like, we're not in a story, it's all bullshit. And he has a great line where he's like, you just want to use me as part of your publicity. Well, fuck that. <laughs> His delivery of that line is amazing. Awesome. Sam Neill is just a... Uh, fucking treasure i love that he he's got a very varied career I, i'm a big fan of his it's interesting this is his follow-up to jurassic park i think yeah i think he did like maybe one movie in between this let me check really quick but oh shit 90 no no 94 you're right oh my god so no this is definitely the immediate follow-up i kind of feel bad because that happens sometimes where an actor you know like oh he's the new leading man and then his next movie isn't a hit and then he never kind of becomes a leading man again yeah you know um are you telling like, me think... Possession wasn't a hit? Yes, Linda goes insane. There's a whole kerfuffle of things that happen. 
The movie the kind movie of starts goes, steamrolling into crazy. It goes full horror movie at some point. Yeah. And then it kind of gives us an outline of what the book's about, which it's about the end of the world, and it's about an infection that starts in Hobbs End. It starts with the children and spreads. And eventually this madness will spread to the entire world. Um, Trent eventually starts to accept that, all right, maybe some of it's real. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he tries to flee, but just ends up going through a time portal and ending up back in town again. And this keeps happening until he wrecks the car, and then he is brought to the church where Sutter Kane is at. And Sutter Kane, you know, of course talks to him for a long bit. We should mention that Styles, like, the people that, they don't just go insane, they turn into monsters. And Styles turns into a monster with her head upside down. Oh, that's a great image. I think I, on a Prince of Darkness episode, I said that's the scariest Carpenter movie. I might be wrong. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's, they're, they're all very scary. I think we just forget how scary they are because we're so used to them at some point. Yeah, maybe. The image of the of the old tape video in, in Prince of Darkness with that weird indecipherable creature stretching its arms, that might be like the image that scares the shit out of me like forever. The shit that happens in the end of this. Oh, yes. Is, is definitely... Uh... The sound she makes is what creeps me out. Yeah. <laughs> And oh, like the sound design it... in this is great. keep it going when he drives off like i like that there's like a moment where you still hear her kind of like laughing after he's already left mm-hmm. which is a really nice touch um but kane is like look i um he's he says that he thought he admits this is earlier but he says that he thought he was making up the stories but really it was these old ones trying to communicate with him and he, they knew that through him they could break back into our world and that's what they're trying to do they're using his writing to break into our world. There's like a pulsating door in the basement of this church that they're going to come through. Uh. Get it? It's in the basement of a church. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's like, more people believe my work than the Bible. And it's like, all it takes is um, what people believe. Like, there's all there's a lot of talk in this about like what is reality and that we're, reality is just kind of stuff we agree upon and that it could easily change. Um. Uh. Which, honestly, I think that's a pretty overt political statement right there, but I'll leave that be. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we get the big reveal, uh, which is that Trent is just a character in a Sutter Kane book. <laughs> which suddenly it all makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so comical because, I mean, you can kind of pick up on it beforehand because he's literally like, he just talks like a hard-boiled guy trying to sleep with Styles all the time. Um, to the point where he starts realizing it when she like starts to like make moves on him where she's like he wrote me this way that's what the audience wants yeah. um, but like there's one the one part where like he's been kidnapped and he's in the confessional he still finds the time to light up a cigarette well because that's, that's what badasses funny. do they smoke that's, that's what a fucking character in a book does <laughs> And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not a puppet. You're the puppet. He doesn't say that. 
but he says no one pulls my strings. Um, but he has to slowly kind of accept. And Sutter Kane's like, I I made you, I brought you here because you're the one who's gonna bring my novel to the world. And then once it gets out there, the world's gonna end. And then there's a rip in space and time, and all these monsters come through. <laughs> there's this that great shot in the long tunnel later where uh, it's you know if that they shine too much light on it, it might not look great. But because of like the way they capture it with the movement and the, the, the flashing lights almost, like just barely outlining it so you can see the weird indecipherable shapes and like just short, small bursts of like sections of it. It basically looks like a giant horrific meat puppet uh, that's constantly changing shape. Um, it's, it's my favorite part of the movie. I just, I love the, the horrible, disgusting monsters. <laughs> I want monsters to be in every movie, though, now, so, like... Yeah. Honestly, I'm always a little disappointed when a monster doesn't actually show up. I think we had that discussion. I think we had that discussion about, like, Manchester by the Sea needed a monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. The guest needs to be about werewolves. Well, I'm even disappointed. Like, I'll just be honest. I love and respect the artistry of these horror films that have been coming out recently where they play with reality a lot, and it's like, oh, it could be all in its mind, and then they never really deliver on a monster showing up. You know? Mm-hmm. I maybe just saw one the other night. No, that's a great and, movie without the No, monster. I'm not saying it's not a great movie. I am not saying that. <laughs> okay. I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm, I love the movie. But deep down, I really do want a monster to just show up. <laughs> Well, and like, you know who else? You know who else wants a monster to just show up? John Carpenter. Because guess what director he thinks is overrated? Well, well not really director, of, but producer. All of them. But, no, Val Luton, director of Cat People. <laughs> he's like, the fucking Cat People never show up. <laughs> I saw him give an interview where he's like, I think Val Luton's overrated. They fucking his movies never deliver. <laughs> And I'm I, like honestly, like again, I love Val Luton stuff, and I do think that stuff's great. Like I, I would never put it down. But if you can give me the exact same experience and also have a monster show up, <laughs> I'm gonna pick that one. See, here's what I think needs to happen. I think need to look at people need to look at the template of what happens in Jaws. Riff on it. Once you have that formula down, start moving into other genres and just put monsters in it. That's why the, I love the Predator franchise. They treat it like normal movies, and then the Predator shows up. Or at least they, they should be. I don't, that doesn't always work out for everyone. Well, I mean, the, I think the other really good example is from Dusk Till Dawn. Oh, which yeah. Which is like a crime yeah. filler for the first half. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, oh, shit, fucking Aztec vampires. <laughs> yeah, more. I, I'd love to see more movies like that. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not even saying to get rid of the other version, you know? <laughs> like I like both versions I just also want the movie where the monster shows up yeah. but you know what else shows up aside from the monsters Hayden Christensen <laughs> <laughs> yes Anakin Skywalker himself is in the film yeah Trent wakes up on the side of the road and he gets found by Hayden Christensen a uh, paper boy and yes uh, the kid have you ever heard of have you ever heard of the legend of dark plague is the wise <laughs> no um, he says, have you ever heard of Hobbs End? The kid's like, no. And, but he has the manuscript, and he keeps trying to get rid of it, but it keeps finding him. 
because he doesn't want to deliver it because he knows what will happen if people read it. Which is that weird moment where it's like he believes, but he also is still trying to say he doesn't, you know? Even yeah. after all that, like he's wrestling with it. Which leads to a very uh, amazing scene. I think you know the scene I'm talking about. Uh, where, uh, first of all, I just love that there's, there's all again, there's all this apocalyptic talk going on in the background of the movie. Um, but it's all about, like, current riots. There's a great little moment on the bus where this old lady's like, People think they have it bad now. I lived in the Depression. You should have seen the Bowery bodies stack three feet high. <laughs> it's like, holy shit, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> you should just show that clip. Don't have me explaining it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because oh, that's it's... amazing. Boom. I'm not going anywhere. I'm God now, you understand? God's not supposed to be a hack horror writer. But maybe I can help you believe. Look around when you wake up. Did I ever tell you my favorite color was blue? And so the movie's full tilt crazy by this point. Yeah, it goes full tilt crazy. And it just goes crazy in a way that Carpenter never really did, you know? Yeah. His movies go crazy a lot of the times, but never in this way, where it's like not just playing with reality, it's also playing with the film itself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Like, the bus just doesn't turn blue. There's not like a blue tint on everything. After returning to to New York, he starts... He he meets up with Harglow again, and... um, Harglow is like, who the fuck's Linda? What happened? You were sent alone to find to bring back Sutter Kane and his manuscript. It is funny that the character that Sutter Kane wrote out of the quote unquote wrote out of the story was his editor. <laughs> I think that's a little funny. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but yeah, that's <laughs> that was months ago that was supposed to happen. And In the Mouth of Madness has actually been on sale for weeks now. And the movie's already coming out. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I should say they. It, there's a funny line very early in the film. They talk about how they already sold the movie rights, even though the book isn't even out. Yeah, which is something that happens a lot. That actually. Oh yeah. It's it's much worse right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so it's out there. You can't stop it. And uh, he Trent uh, discovers someone who's reading the book and bleeding from their eyes. Which at this point we learn is the sign that people are losing it, <laughs> that uh, they're they're becoming uh they're going crazy and becoming like monsters, and he murders them with an axe, and that's how he ended up in the asylum. And you want to know what this reminded me of in a weird way? Um, when he finishes telling the story to David Warner, I genuinely have no idea what you're gonna say. So go ahead. You you wouldn't be able to guess it. Um, Cloud Atlas. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never. What. Um, you know, there's when um, Sonny, that was her name, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, Oh, God. Um, she's giving her testimony to the guy um, right before she's executed, which mm-hmm. is how, which is, like, how her story is recorded, and then becomes a religion for a future society, um, I should point okay. out. Um, but he says, uh, the guy says something to her, like, what if no one believes this truth and believes this stuff? And he's like, she's like, someone already does, meaning him. Like, that in telling 
the guy interviewing her the story that now he's already a believer. So someone's going to believe in it eventually. And David Warner tries to act like he doesn't believe what he heard, but like you can tell he does. Mm-hmm. You know, so that it, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I am in shock, but that totally works. <laughs> we should say um, the apocalypse actually happens. I want to point out. Which is the only time the apocalypse actually happens in the apocalypse trilogy. Yeah, we only see the beginnings of it. And yeah. there's always like a glimmer of, of hope that it stopped. Like the thing, obviously, maybe the most optimistic, quote unquote. And it still yeah. ends with everyone dying. Uh, mm-hmm. Prince of Darkness is like, we've we've contained it, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. And here it's just, it is ended. Yep. It's, it's done. Although I would I would say Prince of Darkness might have a darker ending in a way. I think it's scarier, like more immediately scary. But that might just be how I watch movies. I don't know. The, someone could come up to me like, no, I thought this was scarier. And I'd be like, yeah, I get it. This one lingers longer in a different way entirely. I guess, yeah. I just think uh, Prince of Darkness kind of yeah. ends with a very definitive, like, human lives are meaningless in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> And this one kind of has, I mean, um, there's kind of like a rebirth of the world in it. It's a rebirth of monsters. <laughs> but whenever there's a rebirth, it's always hoped that, you know, what is born dies at some point. So then there can be another rebirth. Nah. Um, but at this point, the world is given over to the old ones. And I just like the very subtle apocalypse that happens where we just hear everyone get massacred in the insi- uh, asylum, except John Trent. And then he's just wandering outside, and we just see, like, papers everywhere and stuff. Um, and, like, I love that, like, even when he's on the city street, there's, like, a couple people still running around in the background. <laughs> but there's, like, no organization to it, and you don't see any monsters. And you just hear, like, radios being like, we, we're getting reports that it's spreading. Again, it's um, publishing brought about the end of the world. <laughs> and more to that publishing point... Uh... When they had to shrink the budget, actually, for this film, something I did not know before doing a little bit of research on this, one of the big cuts, I think the big cut of the movie, was that there was going to be a sequence where the town of Hobbs End would have been swallowed up into, like, a giant book or something. It's, it's a little unclear, but it, it would have been, like, a whole, like, literal shutting of the story. That would have been interesting. And I guess the idea was to kind of, the idea was kind of to use, like, a, like one of those pop-up book illusions, kind of. Okay. Yeah. Which sounds really weird, and I would have liked to have seen it, but I guess it doesn't need it in this in this long I run. was worried that you were going to say, like, there was originally, like, a bigger, like, monster ending, you know? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Because right. I like the lack of actually seeing anything at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but that sounds interesting. And then uh, the kicker of it all. Trent walks into a movie theater where... As a character of Sutter Kane's own creation, he watches the events of the film play out in full and just starts laughing horrifically. The end. I know this book will drive people crazy. I hope so. The movie comes out next month. All right, I got to point this out, though. Um, okay. So, that ending. Um, very uh, very meta and strange ending, especially for a Carpenter film, um, but a great ending. Uh, so, let's let's take our, our Trent as a Carpenter analog. 
I'm going to sit down in the theater and watch the movie play out. So you know what I think that means? And I don't think Carpenter intended this, but this is my reading of it. And I think I can only read it living currently. Uh Um, I don't think I could have read it at the time. I think this is Carpenter realizing... So imagine this... Trent is realizing... Trent Carpenter is realizing that all his work... (laughs) was in service of studios that didn't give a shit about him, that furthered their own agenda, that ultimately profited off his work, that he was a puppet to a system that he thought he was rebelling against the whole time. He made all the work for them, and then he also gets the scene of the future where other filmmakers will get the profit off of his work. (laughs) Which is why he's both laughing and crying. Uh, I, you know what? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> not a. I don't think that's a wrong read. It's definitely not something you could. You can only see it in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't. I, I, I'm not saying that was the intention, but I. That's what I feel watching it. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, sometimes you come across a film like this, and you can get a reading that you never could have gotten when it was initially released. And it's kind of like, Oh, that's neat. How this ended up leading into, or like speaking to things that it had no idea would ever be able to even speak to, you know? Mm -hmm. Cause my read on it is less, uh, like interdimensional, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's, um, Carpenter's attempt to kind of cut off ties to the horror genre, at least like exclusively. You know, because he he did try to veer away from it a couple times. Like, fucking Starman is, like, one of my favorite Carpenter films, and that's not a horror movie in the slightest. Which he also talks shit about in a ton of interviews, though. (laughs) Yeah, which is, like, I think it's weird, because it's... I I think it's terrific, but whatever. Um, I I think it's really him trying one last time to separate from that. But now his Twitter handle is Master of Horror, so who knows? Hey, whatever. Um... Yeah. But now he's just, you know, I think you're, that's not a, I wouldn't disagree with that either. Um, it could be both, you know, that doesn't yeah, necessarily yeah. work against what I'm saying either. Yeah. Oh, I think that's an important thing for many people to understand too. When talking about movies, movies can be more than one thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think we've even watching... brought that up before, but I think it should just be reiterated. Movies can be more than one thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching this. There's a video. Some guy made like a four hour video breaking down Twin Peaks. Um... And it's honestly not, like, awful or anything. Um, I would have just... I wish someone had just told the guy, like, hey, just break it up into four videos. <laughs> no one will be mad at you if you do that. <laughs> um, but uh, my only problem with it is that he's kind of, like, leaning into, like, that his reading is the right reading. And that's when I'm like, no, nah, you know, I wouldn't... You know, you can interpret works multiple ways. <laughs> especially David Lynch movies. Oh, especially David Lynch movies. I just, I just think that... Like, he's, he's making a lot of interesting points. I just don't like the absolutism of his views, you know? Mm-hmm. Which um, I think but, is a nice way to kind of bring about this whole discussion with everything from, like, the 80s nostalgia craze to, like, the corporate manufacturing of, like, products that people do end up creating something meaningful out of, you know? Like, there is no definitive, like, canon of works. There's no definitive, like ultimate list of things that determine like the quality of art or like a medium you know like it's constantly evolving 
uh, people from different backgrounds are going to read things differently. You're coming at it at like from different approaches and understandings. Just, uh, just, just be more open-minded about that, and don't let the publishing industry bring about the apocalypse. You know, let the old ones in. Yeah, that's what they want with the Ghostbusters. Yes, <laughs> they're not busting any ghosts; they're welcoming them. That's my read on Ghostbusters. There you go. Not a bad read. No thanks. It's all a scam. <laughs> yeah, everything. That's why, like, like my read on Carpenter trying to kill his connection to horror. I think we need something to kill, like corporate interest in nostalgia and '80s properties. Yes, we we need to hope, stop them. I don't think that's going to happen so long as capitalism exists. I think someone's going to make a profit off of this shit. It needs to at least evolve because holy shit, please, please. Well, I think we are kind of getting, at least the genre is evolving. I think it's interesting right now because to kind of bring it back to your point, um, you know, Carpenter was only a cult figure for a long time, but really wasn't taken seriously by many filmmakers. Like... The first people to, like, say, oh, Carpenter was a big influence were, like, Tarantino and, like, Rodriguez. But, like, Tarantino is known for watching everything. Yeah. And, like, people kind of, like, people were still dismissive and be like, oh, Tarantino, he likes weird movies, blah, blah, blah. Um, but now we're in this age where it's like, you know, Jordan, I think Jordan Peele might be the heir to John Carpenter. Ooh. I think, I think he's starting down that path. Um, we'll see where he goes. Mm-hmm. Um, which might be a little insulting. Maybe I maybe I should just leave Jordan Peele as Jordan Peele. <laughs> but when I watch his movies, I definitely get a lot of Carpenter vibes in a way that I feel like I've been missing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then also you have people like uh, what's it, Ari Aster? What's is that? How you say his name? Ari Aster, yeah. Ari Aster, who uh, he says that In the Mouth of Madness is one of his favorite movies. Oh, I totally and, see it. <laughs> and is a big influence on how he approaches his work. Which uh, definitely makes sense. Yeah. You know, we're getting more people to take his work seriously. Because um, a long time, you know, the, you know, just film critics just did, they didn't, they only approached Carpenter films as popcorn horror. You know, they never bothered to look at it another way, um, which is a huge disservice to him as a filmmaker. And because if you read the reviews of his stuff from the time, they're like criminal and also just missed the boat entirely. I don't know. It's 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 weird to me that they just never got it. You know. Well, you say that, but Roger Ebert did give Ghost of Mars three out of four stars. Holy fuck, Ebert! I I know, I know. He gave this he gave this one two stars. <laughs> I don't get it either. Uh, Ebert, Ebert, <laughs> my man, Ebert. Oh man, Ebert, what what are you doing, buddy? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just. <laughs> I actually think there's part of... I think that's why, um, even though critics like to pretend they're above marketing, they aren't. Because <laughs> I think it doesn't matter how a movie isn't just marketed towards general audiences. I think how it is marketed to critics. Because critics are, like, promised certain types of movies, so they go in with certain expectations. And I think a lot of people, you know, carbon movies is like, yeah, you know, horror movie, blah, monsters. And so that's how a lot of critics just approach the work, and they don't go any deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas today we're getting similar movies made, but they're released in more prestigious formats, and that's getting people to at least approach them from different angles. So you're saying there's hope? I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that we're all puppets, <laughs> tangled in strings. 
the best Marvel movie. Anyways, Matt, thank you for doing this again. I can't wait to do the next episode of Happy Amblin and get us back on track. I know it's been a little rough for both of us. I need audiences to know that just because I do this show with Diego doesn't mean I endorse or agree with any of his opinions. (laughs) (laughs) I've had good takes lately. Sure. Matt, where can the people find you? I'm at EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. Why is it still the one? It's a long fucking story. Look, I got more going on in my life right now. <laughs> and you can find me at twitter.com slash the Diego Crespo. Check out the Waffle Press on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Patreon. Uh, I probably forgot something there. Spotify. There you go. That one. Go over there. Check out our other John Carpenter retrospectives, Halloween retrospectives, as this is coming out on Halloween itself, which is fun. And happy Halloween. Get Get spooky with it. So thanks for if listening. you're listening to a podcast on Halloween, that's incredibly sad. <laughs> In the morning, you listen to it on your commute. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We've been professionally unprofessional. Mass killings appear to have moved inland. All the major cities on the East Coast are silent. We lost contact with Los Angeles and the West Coast last night. So it's impossible at this time to know how many unaffected people are left. If... For- for if for any reason you are one of us who hasn't become infected, take shelter immediately. Do not trust any friends or family members. I repeat, do not trust friends. Ha 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 ha!